You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. We released part one and part two on the same day. Part one, David talked about the American experiment and what's the DNA of America. And in part two, we talk about not only what is in store for the future of America, but among many other things, why didn't David invest in Amazon? You know, going back to the, the book, you list these genes and these ideals by which America started. Again, as exemplified by the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, where the right to pursue, you know, happiness, all these things. Obviously, the history of America often differs from these ideals. There was the punishment of Native Americans. There was slavery. There was maybe unjust wars. I guess I have two questions. One is, how do we um, bring these concepts together? Why did, we, why did we diverge so much from our ideals? And then the second question would be, how do we 
rectify this fact that some of our heroes from the past in cast in a different light are often very villainous. All right, two different questions. First, when Thomas Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, he honestly was thinking only of white propertied men. And what happened is in subsequent generations, people took the rhetoric and the language and they said, no, it should mean what it really says, not what he intended. He said all men are created equal. He didn't say all white men. Um, and uh, so therefore it got to be in interpreted by other people, people who wanted women's rights, uh, the, the end of slavery, uh, all kinds of uh, 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 rights for people with sex, different se sexual preferences. They, these, these kinds of things were, were read into the language that Thomas Jefferson wrote. And it really was our creed of our country. That's why the Declaration of Independence uh, preamble is so important. It became the creed of our country, though I don't think Thomas Jefferson actually thought that was the case. And in fact, when the Declaration of Independence was being debated in the uh, uh, in the in the uh, in, in the Continental Congress, they never they didn't pay any attention to the preamble because they didn't really think that was significant. They focused more mm -hmm. on the sins of King George. It was much later, many years later, that the Declaration's words became so important. The same is true in. Uh, with the Bill of Rights. Uh, James Madison, the father of the Constitution, didn't even want a Bill of Rights initially, didn't think we needed one. Now it's probably the most important part of the Constitution. It's the part that, that gets more litigated than any other part of the Constitution. So I, it's just the way the world has changed. And I, I think that we have to recognize that um, the rhetoric that was used has come back and been used in terms of um, uh, people who would never, it was intended to really benefit. When Thomas Jefferson wrote that language, he wasn't really talking about slavery or slaves. Right, but but that preamble has become the creed almost, of the country. It's yeah, the creed of the country. Like taken more broadly, it it really has sort of been a blueprint not only for our country but for many other countries moving towards democracy. So whether he intended it or not, it really has become an important part of our DNA, a, a broader interpretation of that preamble. That's correct. And so, you know, look, when Thomas Jefferson was so upset with the way they, that his, his Declaration of Independence was edited, he didn't admit for about nine years he was the author. He was so embarrassed at what had happened. Later, he realized that, that it, was, it was a good thing, and he ultimately took credit for it and put it on his, ep, on his epitaph as the first thing on his epitaph. I would say that many times in life, people write things or do things or say things. They don't intend to have certain consequences, but those consequences do arise. And that's what actually happened here. Um, Thomas Jefferson's rhetoric was turned on its head. And when people who were black said, well, all men are created equal, it doesn't say all black men are, or all white men are created equal. People ultimately couldn't, you know, deal with the fact that there was this contradiction. In the end, uh, ultimately, that was probably helpful in getting rid of slavery because the, the creed of the country was that all men were created equal. And Abraham Lincoln always believed in that. And he believed in that principle. Right. So, so again, what happened though is you have you have these beautiful ideals that the country started out with, whether these are interpreted ideals or not, but clearly we diverged at different points. And I'm not just talking about early on with Native Americans, but even later with things like the Vietnam War or or battles of equality that are, that are still happening right now. Yes, well, look, um, you, you know, events evolve and take the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was, uh, uh, you know, was one of the, the times when the country, more or less, I would say, until the Vietnam, uh, the country more or less believed what the federal government told it. In other words, I think presidents more or less had a lot of credibility. 
And then there was, uh, it became clear that we were not telling the truth about Vietnam. And increasingly, there was a credibility gap, so-called. And increasingly, people, and particularly when Watergate came about as well, people began to distrust the government, in part because of unintended reasons, but basically the way the Vietnam War was handled and Watergate was handled, people lost trust in government. And that was something that you, know, you couldn't have anticipated, but that's really, that's probably when it began at, at the level that we have it now. You know, which is interesting, the, the Vietnam War ended mid-70s. You worked for the president that came after, President Jimmy Carter. What, how did you guys discuss this issue of rebuilding um, trust for government, trust in the president, and so on? Well, when Carter ran, um, he was a Southerner. No Southerner had been elected president, you know, for over 100 years. Um, and he was a little-known governor of, of a state that had only elected him once. So his campaign theme was a government as good as the American people. Well, it's not clear how good the American people were, but people thought they were pretty good, so they wanted a government as good as the American people, whatever that meant. Carter also said, I'll never lie to you, because he'd been, we had seen presidents lying. President Nixon had lied. And so he captured very much the, uh, the ethos of the time, which is we wanted a government that was good, a government that was honest, and that's how he campaigned. He tried to do that as president. He wasn't as effective. Um, but when you go back and look at his administration, he actually got a lot of things done. Today, we're, we're very happy if Congress can pass one major bill a year. In Carter's day, they were passing many major bills. Many people thought too many bills, and he was trying to do too much. But in the end, um, Carter did not come away as a successful president because in our country, you're measured as successful if you get reelected. And if Carter had been reelected, he would have been more successful in terms of the eyes of historians. But not having gotten reelected, he was... Uh, you know, treated poorly, relatively poorly by historians until recently. Do you think after Vietnam, and this relates to now actually post-Afghanistan, do you think other countries viewed the U.S. in maybe a poorer light, which led to things like, you know, the Iran hostage situation, various problems with the Middle East and so on? Uh, do you think, and do you think that could happen again post-Afghanistan? Well, after World War II, we were clearly uh, the country that had saved the Western world and saved democracy, and so we had enormous amount of influence. But since that time, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes, Vietnam being a classic one, but uh, Iraq was another one, Afghanistan uh, another one. And as a result of all that, I think we have a lot less credibility than we would like to have, and I think people around the world are less reliant on us. I think it's less likely that foreign leaders are going to say, whatever the United States tells us, we're going to believe. That's just not going to happen anymore. Right. So what do you see happening in the years post-Afghanistan now? I think the biggest foreign policy challenge the president is trying to deal with is getting our allies to kind of work together and to have common views on, on uh, climate change, common, common views on uh, human rights, common views on how to deal with China. Um, and he wants to get them unified before he actually sets out a policy um, that deals with China. But for the time being, um, clearly Afghanistan has cost the government of the United States some credibility around the world. It's going to take some while to patch that up, I think. Right. Now, and this is related, how do we look at the heroes of initial America and given their flaws, try to... You know, there, there, there's one school of thought that says, you know, even George Washington was more villain than hero because he owned slaves, which we know is this, you know, the worst thing possible. 
so again, how do we kind of combine these two strains of thought? You know, um, when I, you went to grade school and I went to grade school, George Washington was put on a pedestal. Uh, clearly, he was an incredible person. He, he won the, the Revolutionary War as a general with very limited resources, our first president, the, the presider of the Constitutional Convention. But he was a slave owner. And I think you have to look at these things in context. He um, wasn't a perfect person. No slave owner would be a perfect person. But I think if somebody is famous and his contributions are principally because they were a slave owner, that's one thing. If they did so many other things, you could say, well, they did they did own slaves. It was part of the times. It was not a good thing to do. And in, in hindsight, I don't think you you throw out uh, all the good with uh, with the with the bad. But I, I do think we we should look at his history with a um, open eye. And I think it's it's you know as it's often said, nobody's a hero to their valet. Which means when you get to know somebody up close, you know you see their faults. And well, some of our great American heroes have our faults, had faults. And many of our presidents, our first, I think, our, our six out of our first eight presidents were slave owners. So you know they they had some great features, but they obviously had some bad features too. Right. So maybe the concept even of a hero is is mistaken. Well, I think people like to look up to somebody. Sports figures or writers or, or performers, people like to have people that they can admire. It gives them something to strive for, and it, some, it makes them realize how wonderful um, the human achievement can be. But clearly, when you get to know the, a person very well, you see that any person has it, his or her faults. And as we examine these founding fathers up close, we can see that they were not perfect people, just as the today, all the leaders we have are not perfect people either. Uh, we don't we don't have slave owners, but clearly we have people that have you know challenges as well. So it's just that's what you you know all of life is adjusting to the reality of 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 realistic uh, uh, achievements and and what's realistic. Uh, you know everybody might have great ideals of what they want to do and believe should be done, but in the end, life is about adjusting to the reality of what really is possible. Yeah, and and the what really is possible. Is interesting because again, part of the DNA you mentioned of America is capitalism and entrepreneurialism, but really that's underlined by innovation. Right. And uh, America seems to be an originator of so much innovation. And I, I love your interview with David McCullough about the Wright brothers. Right. This, these are guys who are two bicycle shop owners with no money, essentially going up against the American government in this race to create the, the airplane. What, what was your fascination with the Wright brothers? I think of all the interviews in the book, that's one of my favorites because it's something I didn't know that much about. And David McCullough, honestly, didn't know that much about it either before he dug into it. But for those who haven't uh, familiarized themselves with the story, the Wright brothers were just uh, people who didn't go to college. Um, they were smart people, but they hadn't gone to college. They had no engineering background. They decided to go to Kitty Hawk of all places because there was good wind there and, and, and privacy and try to show that humans could fly and land safely. And many people laughed at them and many people thought they were crazy. And even the American government didn't give them any money. They had to go to France to prove that their concept had worked. And uh, that was where, um, you know, that's where they really kind of became famous because it was in France where they were showing how their plane could fly. Then they came back to the United States and finally the U.S. government 
more or less the American people embrace them. But the point you make is this, and I, I think America is a country that invented itself. You know, most countries been around for hundreds of thousands of years. We invented ourselves more or less in the early 1700s, and, um, and we've been reinventing ourselves as a country many times, but with the spirit of innovation, and, and uh, you can do anything you put your mind to, that's part of what is a gene of, a, of our country. So the great innovations in this country that I describe in the book, the technological innovations, whether it's computers or, or, or smartphones or other things that we've invented in the United States or perfected, that's what makes so many people in the United States so happy about uh, the future, that we have the ability to reinvent ourselves and to invent things that'll make life better. And many countries don't have that kind of spirit. In many countries, uh, it'd be unlikely that in most countries in the world, you would find people inventing the kind of things that have been invented here. And why is it the United States invents more than any other place? Because we have such an entrepreneurial spirit, part of our genes, and we also have a, a kind of a government that is allowing people to do these kind of things without being a heavy hand on, on innovation. Right, and you mentioned how in the, in the interview with Walter Isaacson, that one feature of innovation is curiosity and the fact that, you know, all, almost all Americans got here because their ancestors were curious about what it would be like to come to America and live here. That curiosity is fed into our innovation. Yes. Think about it. Um, our ancestors came from another country typically, and they were people that didn't have that much where they were coming from and they wanted to reinvent themselves and get a new life. Think about yourself or myself. Would I want to go now and reinvent myself and go to another country? Probably not. You know, it's a it's a pain to kind of readjust and pack up and do all those things. But our ancestors did this in part because they thought this country was a, a place that was a bit of a beacon of of of, of freedom. Um, it's it's hard to believe that how many people want to still come here. We have more people coming here every year than all the other countries combined, practically in terms of people wanting to come into the country. Right, even though, like you mentioned, it's a struggle to pack up, move countries, figure things out, start all over. But you know, you have a quote from Wilbur Wright in the book: uh, "No bird ever soared in a calm." Right, which is which is both, you know, an example of how they made planes fly, but it's kind of a, a inspirational metaphor for how you create anything new. Yes, I mean, think about it. The people that create new things are generally not people anybody thought would create those things. Generally, the people that create new things that are wonderful are young people. They're often in their 20s. They're people that don't know what they don't know. They often don't have a lot of money. They didn't come from wealthy backgrounds. They, they believe in certain things and they want to prove that they're right. And they will walk through walls to prove that they're right. That's what the entrepreneurial spirit's all about. And it's really not about making money. In the end, a byproduct of of being a successful entrepreneur is you get a lot of money, uh, but that's not what really motivated a lot of these people. Orville Wright and Wilbur Wright could care less about money. They never really cared about money. Right, so it's interesting because you're obviously huge in private equity, you're a big investor. What do you look for in an entrepreneur before you invest? Well, I'm looking for somebody who will walk through walls, who's very smart, but, um, you know, may not have all the social graces of somebody that that is going to please everybody all the time. Somebody that's more interested in proving that their concept is right than making a lot of money. Somebody that knows how to motivate other people. Somebody that really um, is prepared to work around the clock to prove that their concept is right. That's the kind of entrepreneur you want to back. 
So why, for example, didn't you invest in Jeff Bezos and Amazon.com given that right. it seems like he has so many those qualities? Well, in those days, I wasn't as perceptive as I later became, I could argue. <laughs> Secondly, um, the idea that somebody was going to sell books over the internet and that was going to become Amazon, which is more than just selling books over the internet, was not something I believe would happen. In fact, when Jeff went public, he was really selling very little other than books over the internet. It was later that he really re re reinvented the company. But, you know, I, I, I regret a lot of my investment decisions. I passed on uh, Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook. I passed on uh, um, Mark Andreessen's uh, Netscape when he first came and approached me at the, when he was just barely out of college. So I, I, I make a lot of mistakes and I make them every day. Um, you know, sometimes you just don't have the ability to, to see who's going to be a great entrepreneur and who's not. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I was just talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com 
slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It seems like a common theme of many critical points of capitalism, and this is described in your chapter on capitalism, are things that increase the speed or efficiency of an important process. Like the cotton gin increased the speed of us extracting cotton, or railroads, or in particular, the telegraph. The internet seems perfect in terms of increasing the speed of sending files, sending media, communicating. I'm surprised, or, or, you know, again, it's easy to say in hindsight, but the, the internet seemed like a natural in terms of uh, well, being a big boost for innovation. Remember, the internet um, has only been in our lives for maybe 20-some years or so. It's hard to believe life existed without it. <laughs> and remember, um, Al Gore, when he was a member of Congress, though he's been derided for this, the truth is he talked about an information superhighway. That was the phrase, an information superhighway, later became the internet. The internet was set up largely to let academics uh, communicate with each other. The the, the, uh, impact it's now had has been obviously much more than anybody anticipated, and nobody anticipated, no one, even the inventor of the internet didn't anticipate the way it would change the world for everybody. And there's other things that have no doubt come along that will do the same, virtual reality, um, quantum computing, um, new types of biotech investing on, and, and products are going to change the way we live and think. And 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 um, just think about the Zoom that we're now on uh, talking through. Um, I never heard of Zoom until like two years ago or when the pandemic came along. And now now you, you believe you can't live without it. And there are other products that are come along like that. That's the way in, innovation is. Uh, and you're correct. Very often innovation is about making what you want to do happen cheaper quicker and, 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 uh, easier than it would otherwise be. The internet obviously 
changed the way we dealt with COVID. We had this economic lockdown. People started using products like Zoom to uh, do remote work, to communicate with each other. People went from shopping in local stores to relying on Amazon to get, uh, you know, all their goods and, and services even. So how many of the, how much of the economic lockdown has now become a lifestyle for America instead of just a temporary thing? Like, are we going to be in a world now of remote work, of shopping at Amazon and so on? Well, very often when you live through a historic event, you don't quite realize how historic it might be. Uh, when we when 9-11 occurred, we, we, we lived through it, but we didn't realize how it was going to change the geopolitics of the world the way it really did. Uh, when you live through um, this pandemic, you didn't realize that today, going forward, it's very unlikely that people are all going to go back to their office five days a week and work at, in their office. We probably have changed for the foreseeable future the, the way people work in their offices. They're probably not going to do it five days a week. And, and we also learned how to change the way we communicate with people. So this call we're now having, it's a, it's a call where I, I can see you and you can see me through some kind of Zoom device. But would it be as effective if it wasn't on, on, on uh, a Zoom? Probably not. We had conference calls for a long time. But until we had Zoom, people didn't feel as comfortable doing these kind of things uh, repeatedly uh, the way we now do it. So you know, think about it. The Industrial Revolution changed the way we live and work over a hundred year period of time. And uh, you could argue that, uh, that, uh, that the internet changed the way we live and work over a 25 year period of time and smartphones maybe over a seven year period of time. But in just one and a half years, the pandemic has changed the way we live and work. And probably it's gonna not go back to where it was before. Let's take uh, our, our new dependence on Amazon. Amazon was already doing great, but now we really have abandoned the local store the mom and pop store for Amazon. And we had to do it for a year, but it's now affecting the economy of every major city in the world because, you know, right. the, the velocity of money in those cities is, is decreasing because it's going to Seattle. There's always a new entrepreneur who comes along with a new idea. And in fact, like Jeff Bezos himself is starting new department stores and maybe they will cannibalize his, uh, his, his business. Who knows? But people will always find opportunities. And so there will be new ways for people to come up with new products and new services. In fact, if anything, uh, Amazon and other companies like Microsoft and Apple and others have spawned so many uh, other companies that spin off of those kind of services and companies. I don't think we lack for, for new opportunities and so forth. 25 years from today, people may say, what was Amazon? They don't know what it, maybe it's a river somewhere. I want to ask about you. you you've been involved in so many different things. like. I love your interviews and these books, like the one we're talking about, The American Experiment. You've been involved in huge amounts of philanthropy. Uh, but running the Carlyle Group, you've been a really successful leader. Like former presidents have worked or advised the Carlyle Group, including, you know, uh, the first Bush, uh, John Major, the former prime minister of the UK. How do, how do you personally motivate these people to work for your company? Well, you don't think it was my good looks and charm. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I suspected that, 
but I, I, I feel I have my good looks and charm and I wouldn't be able to do that. So there must be something else. Well, um, I, I had an idea, which was that um, people who served in government didn't have to only be making speeches or, uh, or being lobbyists or, or using government connections. So the idea was for these prominent people, they were mostly draws for um, my investors. So if I had a conference and I said, well, David Rubenstein's going to speak, nobody would show up. Or at a dinner, I'd said, uh, David Rubin's going to speak. Nobody's going to show up. But if I had former presidents, former secretary of state, former prime ministers, people would show up to listen to them. And so that was, you know, not a brilliant idea, but that was the idea we had. But the thing that we made us grow the, was that we had a vision of building a global multidiscipline private equity firm. Historically, private equity firms had only either done buyouts or venture capital or growth capital. We decided to combine everything in one shop and to globalize it and take our brand and make it a global brand that was obviously aided by having some prominent people in the firm. So it worked out. But in the end, if if the track record wasn't good, all those other things wouldn't have worked. So I got lucky and I was able to deal with some of these prominent people by, um, you know, letting them, uh, you know, do some of the things they wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, we clearly we, we compensated people well. And uh, it's a very profitable business in private equity. So there were a lot of things that made it work. But, um, you know, I wouldn't say it was, you know, I, I honestly... Uh, would say it wasn't anything brilliant, but uh, it worked out. And, you know, it could have gone the other way and I could have you know, flopped and gone back and practice law and been a very mediocre lawyer the rest of my life. You know, all entrepreneurs who start companies, uh, only by the grace of God did some of them actually succeed. Uh, some very, very prominent people who are well-known now are very wealthy. They came very close to going bankrupt or their business almost didn't make it and they turned it around at some point. So it, it, it's a matter of luck. There's, luck is a very important thing. Where do you think you were lucky in your career? I, I was lucky in um, two two things. One is uh, I wasn't a good lawyer. If I was a good lawyer, I'd be practicing law. Because I wasn't that good a lawyer, I, I figured I had to do something else. But the, the two biggest breaks I had were that I got to work in the White House at a very young age. That gave me more, I'd say, self-confidence than I might have otherwise deserved. It also gave me a, a vision of, of the world that I might not have otherwise had. And it gave me um, ability to to deal with prominent people in ways I might not have been able to deal with uh, without having that experience. And secondly, when I left the White House and tried to practice law again, I wasn't that good at it. I started at Carlisle and it took off. Had I not started Carlisle, I would be a probably a retired lawyer in uh, Boca Raton, Florida now in my little condominium somewhere. And were, were there any initial deals that kind of really brought you over the tipping point as a company? We had some deals at the beginning that worked out uh, reasonably well. Uh, we didn't have any hundred times your money kind of deals you often read about. We were pretty steady, double and triple our money kind of deals, which was fairly good for a buyout business. We were not really in the venture capital business, which has heroic home runs and heroic busts. But generally, it was people thought that we were honest. We were going to take good care of their money. We weren't going to, you know, um, take undue risks, and and that was kind of how we built the business. What do you think about new financial innovations now, like um, let's say crypto or Bitcoin or? Okay, well, um, you're more of an expert on those than I am. I think uh, haven't you written about that? I, I have, but you know, it's it's like let's say like the internet in 1995. Who knows? <laughs> well, look here. Here's my view. Um, I wish I had had the foresight to understand how valuable Bitcoin was going to be. When it first came out, I, I, I disparagingly didn't think it was going anywhere. Now it's at $50,000 of Bitcoin. I wish I had known. Um, I um, have invested through my family office in 
companies that uh, facilitate uh, cryptocurrencies in some ways and not the currencies themselves. And I think that, that I did that because I think this business is going to grow. I think the genie is out of the bottle. I, don't, I think it's like prohibition. You're not going to be able to end people drinking liquor. That's why we ended prohibition. You're not going to be able to get rid of cryptocurrencies because people clearly want them for some reason. They, they want to, to have something different than a government currency because maybe they don't trust the government so much. The most important point, though, I would make about people who buy these kind of things is if, when you go to Las Vegas, you go to gamble. People who go to gamble know they're going to lose. If they spend enough time gambling, you're going to lose. But they know that. They don't care. That's the fun of gambling, that the pleasure of it. Well, in my view is if your Bitcoin may not work out, but if you, it makes you happy to trade them, it makes you, uh, gives you pleasure, put 1% to 2% or 3% of your net worth in, you can afford to lose it, it's okay. Uh, if you're putting in 50% of your net worth, I think that you know it could be a prescription for disaster because nobody knows whether these things are going to work. For a new book that I'm doing and some interviews I have coming out, um, I've interviewed some very prominent investors. One very prominent investor, one of the most famous in the world, said that Bitcoin is worth and all cryptocurrencies are worth zero. And they should, you know, it's going, they're all going to zero. And another very famous investor said it's one of the most important things we've seen in years and he's putting a lot of money in it. So who knows? Right. I, I mean, we've seen lots of financial invasions over the years you have in your career from, from junk bonds to, right. you know, uh, now we have, I guess, different ways of IPOing with, with SPACs and, you know, there's a lot more derivatives and vehicles to invest in. Perhaps, you know, the one thing about crypto is it has this blockchain technology that has other uses. It's not just a currency. Right. But yeah, who knows? It's a diff I've talked to a lot of people and there's opinions all across the board. I mean, what, what excites you right now in the financial markets? Well, the fact that the markets are um, so highly valued is, is a bit of a concern because prices are high. There's no doubt about it. And at some point, you might have a correction. But I think what's going on is that the United States is in a blossoming of it, the entrepreneurial spirit. And people really believe they can start companies and create value in ways that almost no other country has that kind of same spirit. But in terms of financial uh, industry, I think a lot of the um, uh, fintech companies are quite innovative and quite creative. And I've invested in a number of them. Uh, I do think that some of them will do quite well. You, you can't predict which ones are going to do the best. But but clearly, I, I am uh, you know a big believer in investing in entrepreneurial ventures, and I have a family office that invests a lot of money now in growth capital and venture related uh, opportunities. And you know, one or two out of ten or twenty will probably work, but those should be good enough to offset the ones that don't. Let me ask you this: Where do you keep the Magna Carta in your home? <laughs> I don't keep any documents in my home. The point of these documents is to have people see them, and let me explain. The Magna Carta is at the National Archives, and it will be there forever um, because it's kind of a gift to the country. And I think that, think that the reason that these documents should be preserved is not because we need to make sure we know what's in them. We know what's in the Magna Carta. We know what's in the Declaration of Independence. But when people see these documents up close, they tend to remember them more. They learn more about them, and therefore it's better than seeing them on a computer slide. So I, I think by preserving buildings or documents or books, you're preserving history. And if you preserve history, more people are going to likely to remember history and, and, to, and remembering history makes it more likely we're going to avoid some of the mistakes of the past. That's why I do it. So I don't have any of these documents in my house. Uh, you know, this is related to the, um, 
again, the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. It's, again, this blueprint for a, a country with all the genes you mentioned in the introduction. What do you think the U.S.'s role is in maybe even enforcing that other countries have a similar DNA? Like, since World War II, I think we have much more viewed ourselves as the world's police. Right. And have we overstepped that or or not enough or... Well, clearly, uh, Woodrow Wilson said we were going to make the world safe for democracy. And I think that uh, the effort to go into Iraq was an effort, among other things, to try to make some parts of the Middle East more democratic. I think we've learned our lessons. Um, I, I think while our system is the best form of government that anybody knows of, it obviously has imperfections, I don't think everybody around the world wants our system. People have different genes. I just don't think in the Middle East where you have uh, royal families, they're as interested in democracy as we are. Or in China, which has lived under a communist rule for now, uh, you know, almost well, quite a while. The Communist Party is 100 years old in China, but uh, since 1949, the, uh, the Chinese communists have ruled. I don't think that people are dying for democracy in China. Um, or maybe some people are willing to, to, to die for it, but I don't think that in the end that uh, uh, our type of government is so popular in all parts of the, of the world. And so th we, therefore we have to recognize that what we've invented might work well for ourselves, but every country has its own genes and the genes of each country have to be considered when you're, when you're trying to export your own values. And when we try to export American values, it sometimes doesn't work. We tried to export our values to Afghanistan and it, it obviously didn't work. Right. So as a, as a, a government, you know, when should we go forward in trying to export our values? Well, I think we should not try to, by military conquest, try to export our values. We should give people options and let people know about what we have done. But I think it has to be more genteel than using military force to force people to have our, our same kind of government, because I think it's clear that that doesn't work so well. Now, one one question, and I oh, by the way, I really appreciate the time you spent on this interview. I, I love the book. Uh, I hope everyone reads this. Well, thanks very much. I just like looking at you and looking at this great set of hair you have. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I wish I had a hair like that. Is that you have a special barber that lets the hair grow like that, or what? I have. I I just roll out of bed in the morning and let it do whatever it wants. I, I have good genes. What kind of comb do you use? You don't even have a comb. No, I don't even have a comb. Wow, that's great. So, to the benefit of remote work, I could just look however I want. What what books do you have in the background there that I'm looking at? Well, I have a lot of books. These are books I read. Uh, I read a lot of books on history and and uh, biography and business and things like that, as as you probably do. And look, my as I've said, and you probably have heard me say before, reading is one of the great pleasures of my life. I um, got a library card when I was six, and I, I checked out as many books as I could have the first week, and I had to wait a whole week before I could re you know go back again. Um, I I love reading books because it focuses the mind in a way that a, a, a magazine article, a newspaper article doesn't. And I love reading because it really, it shows you about the potential of, of, of humankind. So I encourage people to read much more than they do. Sadly, 14% of adults in this country are functionally illiterate, which means they can't read past the sixth grade level. And many people are illiterate, which means they can read, but they choose not to do so. More than 50% of Americans haven't bought a new book or been in a bookstore in the last five years, which is sad. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know those numbers. So, well, 
David, thank you so much for for well, thank appearing you. on the James Altucher show, doing this interview. One final question. Given all you know, given all you've learned, if you went back in time a thousand years, like to, uh, let's hypothetically say a thousand AD, what good would you be? <laughs> like, how would you, how would you take knowledge from now and what would you do to change life back then? What could you invent? Well, we, we didn't have the interview back then. Uh, so we don't have interviews of Julius Caesar or Cleopatra. And so if we could interview them, we would know. I would ask Cleopatra, who was a better lover, Julius Caesar or Mark Antony? We'd like to know that answer. But I wish <laughs> I would, it could have been back then and invented the interview back then and interviewed all these famous people. All right, that's a good, that's a good service to provide for back then. All right. So David, thanks so much. And I appreciate it. My pleasure. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.